This is Dylan FM, the podcast that goes deep into the work and world of Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place with your host, Craig Danuloff. If you're a longtime Bob Dylan fan, chances are good you know Michael Gray and have read or studied closely one or more of his incredible books. We were lucky to talk to Michael last season about Time Out of Mind, and he's back today to share his very interesting thoughts and observations about the songs on Good As I've Been To You. Today, we're going to hear his thoughts in what I hope you find an interesting way. I'm going to read brief passages from Song and Dance Man about this album, and specifically the songs and performances on the record, and then Michael is going to expand or elaborate on the comments he made in the book. It's a kind of book club with the author approach that lets everyone who isn't yet familiar or read it many years ago hear the beautiful and insightful thoughts in the book. And then he adds more color, updated thoughts, and talks about these songs since it's been over 20 years since he wrote those passages. And I'm able to ask follow-up questions. There's a reason why Song and Dance Man gets fawning reviews from other authors, experts, musicians, and others. And there's a reason why the Bob Dylan Center announced today that they've invited Michael to be the featured speaker for their upcoming first anniversary. I think you'll get a sense of these reasons listening to this show. We're in the midst of a deep dive on Good As I've Been To You and World Gone Wrong, and if you've been reading our Substack, you know we've recently shared a playlist of newer covers of these songs. And we've promised another playlist of source versions very soon. In fact, next week on this podcast, we'll take a tour of all kinds of great Good As I've Been To You cover versions by people other than Bob Dylan with our friend Ray Paget. The covers are one way to get new perspectives on these songs. I think you'll find that our conversation with Michael Gray today is another one that hopefully sends you back to listen to Good As I've Been To You again. Before we get to Michael, I want to let you know that there is a longer version of this episode. In this case, it's over twice as long and filled with some amazing Michael Gray commentary I really hope you don't miss. The extended edition includes five more songs than we cover here, talk about the Dylan cover versions he played in the year leading up to Good As I've Been To You, and some of the sections that you will hear are just longer in the extended cut. To get access to that extended edition, there are two options. You can subscribe to FM Plus, the podcast network we're on, or you can become a Dylan FM premium member. Either way, you get all of our extended episodes and bonus episodes for this and all of last year, plus access to the premium versions of Pod Dylan, The Dylan Taunts, and the entire run of A Bob Dylan Primer, which is a great podcast that is an introduction to Bob Dylan and an overview of his entire life. You can sign up for FM Plus right in Apple Music on our show page, or if you don't listen to Apple Music, visit fmpods.com. It's just $4.99 a month, less if you take the annual discount, and one membership gets you premium access to every show on the network, and there will be more shows announced soon. The alternative is to become a Dylan FM premium member. This costs a few more dollars, but gets you a full FM Plus subscription plus other benefits such as video versions of our interviews, subscriber-only posts, a private community on Twitter, and more. 
See the show notes or visit thefm.club for details or to join. Now, let's listen to our conversation with Michael Gray about Good As I've Been To You. All the quotes you'll hear read in this episode are from Song and Dance Man 3, The Art of Bob Dylan. The original Bob Dylan album uh, had two songs that Bob had written, although they were, you know, they were very heavily Guthrie-ized sort of songs. And there's nothing equivalent to that on uh, on Good As I've Been To You and Well Gone Wrong, but uh, but uh, the similarities are, are considerable, aren't they? I mean... Uh, it's the first time he's done solo uh, album since 1964, and, and that last solo album in the 60s was another side of Bob Dylan, which was very much his own songs and uh, and a very radical departure from the early work. But the early, the first album is a mixture of old blues by people like Henry Thomas and um, and old white material. Um, so uh, yeah, that that just seemed like the most the most the closest thing he was returning to. I mean, I'm not sure that uh, that he gave a damn about that one way or another. You know, it may never have crossed his mind that there was any particular comparison. And I wouldn't want to push it too far. I think uh, what both albums have in common, the first album and then the uh, Good as I've Been to You, for example. Um, they're both uh, they're both dredging things up in in Dylan's mind from uh, the hugely important Harry Smith anthology of American folk music, mm-hmm. which uh, you know had come out in the early fifties, and which everyone in Greenwich Village knew more or less by heart, and had been the first time on any compilation album, white musicians and black musicians had been put together on the same album. Um, and so, you know, there's a parallel there that, that, Bob is, uh, that Bob is doing, is reaching back in, to, to uh, a kind of tradition that, that Harry Smith initiated. Well, let's dig into some of the songs. Um, I'm going to start with, uh, well, as he does, with Frankie and Albert. Which, and I'll say here that what's amazing about the Song and Dance Man book in this chapter is the lineages you trace on earlier versions, alt versions. You know, I know it's hard to know what what Bob heard, what he didn't heard. Sometimes yeah. these songs, at this time, songs were evolving. You know, in this one particularly, there's five titles. Uh, the lyrics changed more dramatically than most of the other songs. But um, you... Yeah. You did the detective work, and as you've pointed out, in the pre-internet era, uh, and so anyone who really wants to understand this stuff should certainly seek out the book. But um, here's what you said about Frankie and Albert. Dylan here exhibits his usual haughty disregard for the prevailing winds. If you were to get up at a folk club anywhere in the Western world and start singing Frankie and Albert or Frankie and Johnny, you'd be sneered right out of the place. It's too well known, too obvious. Dylan's album makes it the opening track. Yeah, uh, it's it's so typical of him, isn't it? it? That's just true. I mean, I just I just completely agree. 
with what I wrote. Um, it, it, uh, not that I know much about what goes on in folk clubs, but, uh, but you know, you wouldn't get up and do that now. You just wouldn't. Maybe, maybe people do, but uh, it's not what he would have chosen to do when he got up in folk clubs in 1961 and two. Yeah, and then a, f- a few paragraphs later, uh, you kind of go further into Bob's, um, you know, Bobness in choice. There is an immense multiplicity here, and reopening these gates is, for someone in Bob Dylan's position, a far greater acting against the grain that could possibly be achieved with a rock album. Good as I've been to you and world gone wrong turn a radio telescope upon the past, retrieving that which seems light years away in the era of Microsoft, McDonald's, and MTV. These albums are anthropologies of individualism, but they also champion the dignity of labor, the silenced and oppressed. They celebrate oral history, working class history, history that struggled against oceans. You find a deeper story there than someone who might just listen to the album and go, oh, Bob's doing these cute old songs. Yeah, uh, I think it's very striking. You know, he uh, he starts out uh, challenging the folk world when he, at the beginning of his career. And then he becomes this very radical artist. I mean, uh, you know, doing doing extraordinary work in the 60s. And then here he is in the 90s. Um, he has become <clears throat> a conservative figure. Uh, I mean, you know, he conserves. Conservative in a good sense. He conserves things. And, um, and he's very interested in the past. And, you know, he's always, for someone who is uh, this middle-class guy from Minnesota, he's, he's always had a very blue-collar consciousness uh, about stuff. It's there in Working Man's Blues Number 2. Uh, it, it's there in, in all kinds of stuff. But here, yeah, he's, um, he, he's singing songs that... Um, that celebrate people who did not sit down with a pen and paper and write songs. Uh, and in some cases, people who never sat down and wrote at all, perhaps didn't even um, know how to read. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a marvelous archaeological dig into an America that he values far more than the one he fulminates against in, for example, the Biograph interview. This is about uh, Jim Jones. This is one of those ones that almost all of the covers, they don't stray. It's, they're, they're mostly very consistent. Yet how intensely well Dylan performs Jim Jones, despite, not because of, the broke-down engine of his voice. The way he sings New South Wales is as disarmingly particular, as yearningly expressive of the romantic place names as he has ever been when he's been paying attention. He sings New South Wales more understatedly, but as beautifully as in Boots of Spanish Leather, he sings Barcelona. Anyone who knows the studio version of the latter from the early 1960s will know that this is high praise indeed. His purpose this time, however, is not to stress romance, but to turn that level of poignancy to different effect. Yeah. 
and and by the way, on uh, on Brits of Spanish Leather, where where the way he sings Barcelona, he has never once repeated that beautiful phrasing live, not once. Uh, it's never been half as good as uh, as that original studio version. I like the fact that he keeps trying it, but you know, he, he has many many times. But um, but anyway. New South Wales, yes. There's just it's it's something completely unique to him, to his to his power as a as as someone who can phrase things so that um, there's all the intensity and at the same time all the delicacy that you could possibly uh, hack into a place name. I mean, it, it, it's easy to just sound wistful. Lots of singers try and do that. But, but Dylan is he's so attentive about it, you know. Um, the broken down voice, yes, but, uh, but my God, the, uh, the attention with which he still makes those noises with his mouth, you know. I mean, it's like, the, the 66 live acoustic stuff um, where, you know, you listen to it now and you think there was a point back in 1966 where this young man was standing at a microphone on a stage and actually producing that moment by moment. And it's so immaculate. It's so utterly perfect. Every breath and every pause. And and part of that is, is a kind of calm center of self that he has. There's there's, you know, I think he's he's often lost it uh, in a rockier kind of. Oh, but um, but he has it when he's when he's by himself. Uh, uh, he, every pause and every breath and every vocal sound, it's all completely under the control of someone who feels absolutely some kind of calm center of self, no need to rush, no need to exaggerate. It's a, and in a way, it's a sort of trusting of the listener, you know, it would be easy to just not, not particularly notice how he sings New South Wales in Jim Jones. But once you do notice, you can appreciate that it's special in a, in a way that no one else but Bob Dylan can ever bring up. On Kennedy I.O., the song I like, and our, our friend John Wesley Harding recorded this as well, I found. Here's what you say. Bob Dylan crashes into the song, making the guitar figure warmly enfolding yet impatient, nervy, edelsome, as befits the narrative of a dangerous sea voyage in exile, a voyage among murderous, scurvy rascals, but ending in success. Dylan's guitar puts you right there among the ropes and sails and creaking decks, while his vocal walks a perilous gangplank between melodrama and real feeling, like the story's bold captain he might prove true. While physically his voice falls down painfully, even grotesquely, 
once or twice, but always gets up and recovers itself and comes back warm and vivid. Yeah, that's nice. It's one of the pleasant songs on, I mean, there are many of them are pleasant, but that one, I think particularly, especially listening to lots of versions, it's just a night. Uh, there's a uh, 10,000 maniac version. That's great. Yeah, yeah. You, you point out something else that I hadn't known. And I think I dug this up next. I'm going on to sitting on top of the world that, uh, Bob Dylan has recorded it before at the other end of his career on harmonica and backing vocals for Big Joe Williams in New York City. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there's so many things I maybe heard 20 years ago of old stuff that dig up, but going back and hearing him, his voice distinctively coming through, because some of the, you know, like the Carolyn Hector thing, who can tell on who was on the harmonica with Harry Belafonte, but the, you can really hear Bob Hold singing. Take it! Absolutely. Uh, Big Joe Williams is very generous to, to Dylan. You know, he, he lets him do the harmonica. He also lets him sing with him on the chorus line. And then a couple of times, he's, he stands back from the microphone. And, and so the only voice you hear is Bob. And um, I've, I've said this in, in talks I've given, that, um, you know, there are these two guys with their different agendas. There is uh, Big Joe Williams, elderly, you know, well, middle-aged, uh, uh, elderly by uh, old blues singers, old working-class blacks standards. And, um, you know, he's trying to sound as virile uh, and on the ball as possible. And there is the, uh, the very young Bob Dylan trying to sound as old as the hill. But it's a great recording. Uh, I, I mean, I do think, I do think, sitting on top of the world is the least successful recording on "Good as I've Been to You." It just doesn't seem to be comfortable with the rhythmic groove of it. Uh, but then uh, we have "Hard Times," which you say is a near masterpiece. Oh yes. And this is what you say about that. It would be easy to find in all of this only the unacceptable face of its of-the-time sentimentality. But just as Dylan maximizes the vividness of that all-around-my-cabin-door in the refrain, because he's more interested in being alert to its imaginative pull than to its shortcomings as eternal truth poetics, so too in the verses Dylan brings out marvelously the song's lurid Dickensian darkness. How he lingers in fretful fascination far more on the word linger, over the mad ghostly line, there are frail forms fainting at the door. Singing the nebulous Victorian Gothic word forms 
as, as if test pushing against it, as if endeavoring to, by sheer concentration of will, to make it materialize into something more human, less supernatural. And it is the most human of touches that he brings, in a moment of lovely articulation, to the pale maidens sighing all the day, enacting the sigh not only on the word sigh itself, but right across the four syllables he makes of all in that phrase. With its majestic incantory length and the marvelous voice Dylan gives us, concentration and sustain throughout, this is one of the finest performances on the two albums. Yes, I think it is. And I think, um, uh, you know, he's, he quite likes cabin doors, doesn't he? He's, um, he's, he's had a cabin, he's built himself a cabin in Utah uh, in an earlier lifetime. And, um, and uh, in, the man in me also has, has something about, uh, you know, stuff raging outside my door. Uh, um, and here we have, um, here we have, we have this weird, uh, supernatural kind of, yeah, gothic Victoriana. Um, it's about the only song by Stephen Foster that you can get away with singing now. Um, because, because of the, uh, outrageous political incorrectness of more or less every other song by Stephen Foster. But, you know, melodically, they're marvellous. Um, and, uh, and this one is, uh, it was so, I'm so pleased that Dylan did this, you know. I mean, this is, here is a case of uncovering something. Here is a case of, of a songwriter who, who somehow gets so much deeper into the, to the human psyche than any of those Cole Porter Gershwin people ever did. Um, uh, and, uh, and Dylan really, he, he really gives this the treatment it deserves. Um, and, and I'm just so pleased that, that he did it. All right, well, let's wrap up with this. So this is near the middle of the chapter because the chapter goes on to cover World Gone Wrong uh, equally well. Um, but you say, in, in writing about Belle Isle, I once suggested that Dylan's taste for narrative ballads was for those tales that were of horses and daughters and hangings, exile and injustice. The songs on Good As I've Been To You fit this pattern pretty well. In the end, what is so clear from this collection is not merely that it has the thematic unity of a concept album without any of the potential self-importance, but that while Bob Dylan hasn't written a single one of these songs, the album could hardly be more Dylan-esque. Yeah, absolutely spot on. Well, it's so, true, isn't it? It could hardly be more Dylan-esque. And, um, and with Well Gone Wrong as well, you know, uh, the change he makes to, um, to the title song, you know, the Mississippi Shakes, it's um, the world is going wrong. Well, you know, you can't, you can't come along in the 1990s and say, hey, you know, I think the world's going wrong. Um, so by Dylan updates it by putting it in the past. He makes, instead of going wrong, it's already gone wrong, which is quite clearly the, the, more, the more truthful on the ball thing to be, uh, 
noticing. And, and, and it, of course, it makes that change, that little change he makes, makes for a perfect Dylan-esque opening line to the album. Strange things have happened like never before. I mean, that's just a Dylan-esque line, isn't it? Summing up this album from the point of view of 32 years later, 31 years later, what, what does it do and what did it do for Bob? I think it was a beautiful thing to do solo acoustic albums after all that time. And so that, that in itself is, you know, it's a very striking thing to do in the 1990s to make the first solo album you've done since 1964. You know, as I say at the very beginning of the book, he says, I think of myself as just a song and dance man. And I juxtapose that with with D.H. Lawrence in 1924, saying, never trust the artist, trust the tale. In other words, you know, concentrate on the work, you know. Um, the work is there whether we know anything about Bob Dylan, a person, or not. Um, and in the end, what matters is not the man, however charismatic and beautiful he may sometimes be. In the end, the thing that matters is the work, the art, the art of Bob Dylan. Yes, well, thank you, Michael Gray, for helping us all see and understand that much better. This was a, <laughs> a great sampling of how, of how you've done that. Uh, thanks for talking to me today. Okay. Did you enjoy this show? Then please rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps. And take a moment to follow this podcast so you don't miss upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening.